Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. Our imaginations can be places of refuge in tough times, a sanctuary from the cares and troubles of the everyday world. But sometimes such fantasy worlds could turn against you, from an amusement park into a prison. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and giant golf ball, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion dissects the 2013 surreal horror Escape from Tomorrow, filmed covertly at Walt Disney World and Disneyland Anaheim, and my guest is Chris Arnsby, who joins me in a secret chamber under South Sea Pier. Hello, Chris. Hello. Now, I know that uh, you've been to America on one of your many international trips, and in particular that you've been to Florida, um, where I'm sure you've seen many of the historic sites there, like Cape Canaveral, or visited Miami and the Everglades and Key West. But you avoided some of the more man-made and artificial sites that uh, can be found there. Is that right? Uh, No, no. I have been to Disneyland and Epcot. And yeah, no, I'm perfectly capable of of going going 100% pure tourist. When you say Disneyland, do you mean Disney World? Uh, Well, okay. I can't remember. The ones in California... Disneyland is the one in California, and right. Disney World is the one in Florida. In I, which case? It's, it's easy for me to remember, because um, occasional guest and fellow Podnos podcaster, Tiltariser, actually lives in Anaheim, and um, <laughs> he's mentioned in the past that he actually takes his dog for a walk across the road in Disneyland. In Disneyland? Well, that's what he said. They must be quite relaxed about that sort of thing, yeah. I, I, I suspect that it's not like, you know, you just cross the road and walk in through the gate and then walk, wander around for a bit. Hmm. I suspect that they have tickets and, and security guards and such. And I have actually been to Disneyland Anaheim myself, albeit 20, uh, 32 years ago. Wow. Um, so it's possible they've changed it a bit since then, as at the time Disney was in the toilet. <laughs> uh, the, the big hit of the summer... The Black Cauldron had not had the uh, impact that people had anticipated. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that was Disney the Wilderness years, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, uh, Oliver and Company, which is Oliver Twist, but in present-day New York and with dogs, came out shortly afterwards. Oh, and with the music of Billy Joel. <laughs> um, and it's it's actually not nearly as bad as you think. And they do actually oh. kill Bill Sykes at the end. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, Fagin doesn't go crazy and hang himself. Well, it's difficult when it's adorable puppies. It's kind of tricky to work that sort of thing into it, I suppose. Well, the, 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 the Dodgers gang are dogs. Fagin is a homeless man. And um, Sykes is the, um, the local hoodlum to whom uh, Fagin passes on the various 
strings of sausages that the dogs steal. Right. It's a very high concept, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it ends with a, a chase into the subway system and Fagin drives into a, a... No, sorry, Sykes drives into an oncoming subway train and dies. Which is actually quite a good way of ending it, I thought, in, <laughs> in, in, in that setting. I thought that's a quite a, a good New yeah. York way of killing off the character. I think Dickens would have done the same if the underground had been around at the time. Well, he did live to see the opening of the uh, London Underground. I suppose he would have done, wouldn't he? Yes, yeah, because, just. Because the, uh, the first underground line opened in 1863 and Dickens died seven years later. Hmm. Yeah, there's a tendency to imagine all these historical people as living in their own discreet little boxes. So it was a bit of a surprise to discover that Agatha Christie, for example, who's someone that I've always consigned to history, was alive as recently as 1976. She lived long enough to see the Albert Finney film version of Murder on the Orient Express. I hope she liked it. Well, hmm. let's, let's, let's be glad she didn't live to see the Kenneth Branagh version of Murder on the Orient Express, <laughs> which I watched yesterday, and is terrible. Ah. Anyway, I feel we're diverting somewhat from the point. Mm. Um, I first heard about Escape from Tomorrow, um, I think shortly after it premiered at, I think it was the Slam Dance Film Festival, um, when it screened with very little pre-publicity. Mm. And no one really understood what it was going to be. And then it was shown, and subsequently all the screenings for the rest of the festival of the film sold out almost immediately. Hmm. No one could believe that this film actually existed. That it had actually been completed and was being shown in public. Yeah, Disney's so company uh, with such a fearsome reputation. But yes, for their uh, protecting their intellectual property. Hmm. Uh, and particularly framing themselves as... Um, everything under their brand being entirely family-friendly at all times. Mm. So the idea of a surreal, black-and-white, satirical, psychological horror film being shot almost entirely on Disney property and in Disney theme parks, covertly, over a period of several years, um, might have been found somewhat startling. Yes, yeah, I would have thought so. It's the kind of thing they would, uh, that would cause raised eyebrows, I would expect. Randy Moore, who wrote and directed the film, shot not only made the film secretly, but actually decamped South Korea for post-production hmm. because he was so worried that Disney would hear about it and the lawyers would intervene. Wow, and he just kind of expected Disney to turn up and sequester all the film or something like that? Yes, or some cease and desist order wow. be filed against him or something like that. But ultimately, Disney did a... I, th I thought that both the responsible move artistically and a very smart business move. They acknowledged the film existed. There is a mention of it at some relevant point on their, on their corporate website. But otherwise, they did not reference the, ex the existence of the film in any way. Yeah. They didn't mention it. They didn't complain about it. They just let it twist in the wind on its own. And as a result... Yeah. After a brief flurry of publicity around the time of its premiere, the film pretty much disappeared. Um, I saw it a few years later when it turned up on Netflix briefly. Oh. And when I was getting hold of uh, the film to watch, I found that it's actually not available on home video in the UK anymore. I had to order a copy from Germany. Okay. Uh, which, I then, which I then passed on to you to watch. Yes. Um, yeah. And the copy is it's, it's in English. It has the extras in English and it has the, the director's commentary. So it's perfectly viewable if you can figure out the menu. Mm. 
but for some reason it's no longer available in the UK. Um, yeah. So what did you think of it? <laughs> it's I, I it's enjoy it's very enjoyable and I watched it. I'm a little bit unsure what to make of it. Um, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say that it doesn't necessarily tell an ordered story. I think that's you know. It, uh, there's, there's at times it seems it feels a lot more like a collection of scenes rather than, than an actual film. But no, I, I enjoyed it. It held my attention. Um, it's genuinely shocking in places. Um, it's very, very odd. And yes, as you say, the, you know the fact that getting it from you proved to it, 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 it makes the whole experience feel weirdly illicit, almost as if I kind of expected somebody from Disney to come up and start banging on my front door or sort of shouting through my letterbox. Hmm. It's, it, it makes me fondly reminiscent of the time when I first saw Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, which was a uh, Norwegian VHS tape <laughs> uh, lent to me by a friend of my sister's um, in English with Norwegian subtitles, which I watched very late at night. And then, somewhat ill-advisedly, ran a review of in the school newspaper. Wow! What was the what was the response to the review? Uh, apparently, there were questions asked at high levels in the staff room. Oh well, although that's that may, although that may have been to do with the next issue where I ran a review of The Exorcist. <laughs> I'm now imagining your days at school as being like Lindsay Anderson's If or something. <laughs> no, not quite so many nude matrons. <laughs> Fortunately, so the film starts with a disclaimer, mm. which <laughs> is almost comical because as soon as you realise what's going on in the film, that this has been shot covertly in Disney World and Disneyland, you wonder how far they're going to be able to take this, and they take mm. it as far as they possibly can. The the extremities of taste, for example, <laughs> and inferences of what goes on behind the scenes in the theme parks goes a lot mm. further than... I mean, it, it really does show... Yeah, this is why Moore thought that he was going to get in trouble. Yeah, it's interesting with the disclaimer because I'm not kind of... I'm not sure how much it's it's there for show. Um, I'm struggling now to think of another example of a film where they kind of have to say, oh, we're not associated with this. I, I, I don't know, I, I suppose, but yes, maybe lawyers did, in, did insist on it. But it was funny. I, you, you asked me to watch a film, and I apologise in advance if I absentmindedly refer to this film as Return to Tomorrow. It is Escape from Tomorrow. I will do my best to remember that. Um, I had no idea what it was. I don't tend to look up these things in advance. Um, and it wasn't until the disclaimer came up, and he's like, "Oh, it's this one," and that's that's the point where I'd kind of I'd heard of it by reputation, but I didn't actually know anything about it. Um, yeah, I'd just I'd, I'd be fascinated to know. It's it's annoying in a way that the film doesn't have a commercial release because it's the classic example of a film that's crying out for a director's commentary. Is there one on your DVD copy? There is, ah. but it's really boring and doesn't <laughs> actually give you much useful information. Really? Um, yeah, it's it's Moore and his director of photography, and they talk in quite general terms about the making of the film, but they don't 
give a great deal of information about the process of how they got this how how they got this made specifically mm. rather than particular filmmaking process oh, they, so, oh, oh yeah this, this little bit was improvised and oh, we shot this bit in this park and this bit in this park and this and this this bit's clearly green screen and there's a lot of green yeah. screen during the film and it's not great um and he talks a little bit about yes doing the post-production in uh south korea hmm. purely for his own peace of mind and also because it's quite it's cheaper than doing it in california yeah. Um and he talks about how also how he he grew up in Orlando and his father would often take him to Disney World. So he grew up in this environment. So mm. the idea of thinking about what's behind the scenes, what's under the surface of this perfect um playground that was that was something that was very deeply embedded in his in his imagination. Yeah, it's funny as well because it is one of these places that kind of looms over the local area. When I stayed in Florida, um, first night I'm there, suddenly start hearing bangs and explosions, which and, and realised that, you know, obviously every night they have the Disney firework display, and you just see it for miles around, and it's it really does just stamp the presence of the place. Um, it really stamps the presence of the place on the geography. It's it's surprising. So yeah, I can imagine if you grow up in its shadow, it must be odd. Presumably, presumably they do season tickets. So you know, families will just go. Well, you know, it's Saturday. Let's go to Disneyland again. Disney World. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, you just be glad I'm not calling it Wally World. <laughs> See, that's going in another direction. In the original script for National Lampoon's Vacation, it was Disneyland. Oh, really? In in the original story, it was Disneyland, and the um, the the park founder character at the end was Walt Disney in the original story, which was set in the fifties. Ah. Um, but for the film, obviously, they had to change it. But the main reason they changed it was because um, the story hinges on them getting to the park and finding it closed for renovation. But Disneyland mm. never closes. Yeah. I think they, it's only ever closed. I think twice, and that's because of the JFK assassination. And nine eleven. Yes. Now, oddly enough, I used to work with somebody who was on holiday in Florida when uh, when the September the eleventh attacks happened, and yeah, they said it was a very very peculiar experience. They spent two or three days completely locked down in the hospital. A uh, hospital, honestly. <laughs> they spent two or three hotel. days locked down. Yeah, locked down in their hotel, and then um, on day three, the park started to reopen. They went back to Disneyland, a Disney World, um, and they just said everybody was walking around. It was a horrible, overcast day, and nobody, obviously, that nobody was having a good time. And then suddenly they heard a plane overhead, and there were no flights at the time. And everybody within this guy's eyeline just stopped and looked up. And after a couple of seconds, a U.S. military plane came out of the clouds, flew overhead, and then sort of disappeared again. And everybody started moving. It was, yeah, that must have been a very, very peculiar place to be so, so shortly after something like that had happened. Mm. Well, one of the themes of Escape from Tomorrow is how does a an environment like this, this enclosed, hermetically sealed 
fantasy world? How does it respond when real life starts to intrude? Um, we have a montage at the beginning of this film of people on rides all over the park mm. as this beautiful, lush music um, uh, appears on the soundtrack. I'm going to mispronounce the author's name, but it's Abel Kozeniowski, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, the music score throughout the film is this absolutely gorgeous mm. you know, Bernard Herman, John Barry sound. It sounds like a huge orchestra playing it. Yeah. And it's, it's so <laughs> incongruous with the shonky makeshift nature of much of the film that it has this beautiful classic Hollywood score. I think at the end, when it when you get down into the credits and it's listing the various music tracks, doesn't it say that one of the tracks is actually part of the score for Fahrenheit 451? Yes. Yes, that stuck out to me as well. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. Um, but this montage ends with uh, people on the Thunder Mountain roller coaster and a very quick cut just after one person is decapitated. And that's I, based. That's based on a real event. That someone was fatally injured on the Thunder Mountain roller coaster. They weren't decapitated, but they did somehow stand up in their seat or bounced up in their seat and hit their head on um, the uh, over overarching part of a tunnel and received fatal injuries. Wow! So it's real. It's real life intruding in the fantasy world. Mm. Well, there's that sort of a po- there's the, the the apocryphal story, whether it's true or not, I don't know. That reportedly nobody is ever, if there is an accident or if there's a medical emergency at Disney, nobody is medically certified dead on the site. You're always taken away in an ambulance, and somebody certifies you dead later on. Well, I've heard that as well, but I think that's yeah. more to do with standard medical procedure that they can't declare someone dead. Unless they're being properly examined, and that mm, has to happen in a hospital, um, and the, and none of the Disney parks have proper full medical facilities. They have mm. a you know a little infirmary, as shown in the film. Although I think that's yes. somewhere else to take care of minor injuries or illness, but nothing actually like a trauma center. Um, we're introduced to our main character, Jim, who at the start of a the, the final day of his family's holiday at Disney World is standing on the balcony of his hotel room talking on the phone to his boss who has just told him that he's being fired and also that he's being fired for no particular reason yes yeah and there's a there's a point as well where um, I think I think I kind of started to, to wonder about this quite early on he kind of looks over the edge of the balcony and sees a car pulling up, and so obviously somebody gets out. And I began to wonder whether the, the whether this this entire film was kind of going to Jacob's ladder, me, and that the revelation at the end of the film was going to be that he'd just stepped over the edge of the balcony, and that all of this was just in his imagination on the way down. But uh, obviously, what actually happens is considerably stranger. Yeah, yes, it's a white van that pulls up. And the driver gets out and he looks right up at Jim. Yeah, it is a, it's a van of... Yeah, that's right. It is a van at first. I think the shot is kind of repeated. 
but not sorry, sorry is is copied but not quite repeated a couple of times later on in the film and i think on those occasions it's a car isn't it rather than a van I, th- I think it's a van every time, but it's ah. it's certainly a, a, re- a repeated motif that there is someone pulling up in a car and looking up at Jim's balcony as though they're yeah. waiting for something to happen. Yes. The family starts getting ready for the day, um, and it made me think of Westworld, <laughs> of uh, t- taking taking the monorail into the park where mm. it's all a separate fantasy world and. Things might get weird. Jim ha- Jim is there with his, with his wife Emily and his, his their children Sarah and Elliot, and he lies yeah. to them about the call. Yeah, and it's it's funny with that. I, it, this is one of these films where I kind of constantly reassessed my opinions of the various characters as, as the film goes on. But that, in a weird sort of way, that strikes me as a very sort of typically sort of dad thing to do that you don't want the last day of the holiday to be ruined by the news that dad's just been made unemployed so yeah of course you're going to of course you're going to sort of you know want to try to give the family one last nice day of holiday yes but i think even relatively early on it's clear that the family relationships are a bit complicated because there's obviously there's the scene where Elliot locks the dad out on the balcony and it's not necessarily done in a way where it's a sort of hilarious family joke. It, there seems to be a slight element of maliciousness to it. In fact, doesn't the son just lock him out on the balcony and then wander off or go back to bed or something? Yes. <laughs> Another thing yeah. that's going on is there's there's some kind of a mild disease outbreak mm. in the park that's referred to as cat flu uh, because there are some sick people on the, the platform on the monorail. That's right, lots and lots of people coughing, which obviously feels slightly uh, <laughs> slightly awkward at the moment. Yes. What, what kind of flu would you get in a park that's most famous for mice? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, I didn't make that connection. It's it's like the the real world is responding to to Disney World as though it's hmm. a kind of infection so it's coming up with this kind of counter balance to uh to oppose it so you have this hmm. this mice infestation to responded with cat flu funnily enough when i went to disneyland it was uh it was 2010 uh which was the swine flu outbreak Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of these slightly weird things where you realise that, that there's a lot of bits of this film that, that have vague uh, that have vague echoes to me. I'll come back come back to this when we discuss the father's experiences on the small world ride. <laughs> well, also on the train are a couple of um, teenage French girls, and Jim finds himself staring at them continually mm. in a way that is uh, already quite uncomfortable yeah yes and this is the point when you realize that this is obviously not the happy this is not the happy family that you might sort of think it is because he's not just ogling I, i'm trying to think of a, a, the, the right way to phrase it i don't want to use the phrase harmlessly ogling because that now seems a little bit inappropriate but you know what i mean there, there's there, there's more an element of sort of wish fulfillment there and perhaps a bit of resentment and i think it, it, his son is also looking at the the girls as well isn't he i didn't notice okay it's uh, his son i mean obviously the, the the son is is very his son's what eight um 
is relatively young. Um, but yeah, I think when they're sitting on the... Oh, am I getting it mixed up with a bit later on? There's definitely a sequence where they're both sort of sitting on the monorail and they're both kind of looking at the looking at the two French girls, but they're both kind of looking at them in slightly different, slightly different ways. And yeah, Jim is obviously uh, uh, having a kind of a, a, a moment of middle-aged angst. Hmm. Uh, so the family go on a few rides. The the Snow White ride, uh, which frightens the daughter, I think, because of the. Mm. Um, the scary witch um and uh, there's something involving winnie the pooh yeah. jim tries to kiss emily but she recoils yes um and jim is clearly very awkward riding these you know these little kiddie rides yeah we and as he starts to suffer somewhat with the picture distorting and running upside down and it feels like it's going into a like a cliche of weirdness Mm. already um, yes I managed to miss uh, I saw that the, the, the copyright date came up at the start of the film but for some reason I managed to misread it as like 1993 rather than 2013 um, and I was very very impressed at the quality of the special effects for 2000 uh, for, for 1993. <laughs> <laughs> then went back and, and realised my mistake. But yeah, they're, it's they're, they're quite nicely done, aren't they? Because it's people's faces just slightly distort and people's sort of eyes go weird and their teeth uh, change. And it's just it is the classic thing of it. It's just enough of a blink and you'll miss it effect that you're not always entirely sure that something's actually happened. And I think the black and white cinematography helps with that as well, because it it just kind of distances you from the footage. Hmm. But black and white is so traditionally thought of as being more authentic and more classical. I suppose, yeah. Um, while they leave the ride, they also notice the the large man in the mobility scooter. Hmm who will come back several times and is sort of, again, vaguely creepy and yeah. uh, something off-kilter about it. Um, Elliot wants to go on the Buzz Lightyear ride, but yeah. Sarah wants the, the big teacup ride. So they uh, split up and Sarah and Emily go off on the teacup ride and they have a great time and they're having mm. loads of fun. Whereas Jim and Elliot are just standing in the queue, yes. gradually shuffling forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, the fairly familiar um, theme park experience to most people. Eventually they get almost at the front of the queue when it announced that, actually, no, the ride is now closed. Is this, this is something I'd be interested... Did they talk about this in the director's commentary? Because, obviously, this is something that they had to film as it happened. But was was it improvised that they were just queuing up and the ride happened to break down, or you know, I did think they just? I think the intention. I think the intention was that the once they got to the rough front of the queue, they would actually go on the ride. Yeah. But on on one of the several times they had to do this and go through the queue, when they got well, almost at the front, the ride suddenly closed. Yeah. And they realised, oh well, obviously that's perfect. Yes, yeah. Yes, it's one of those weird occasions, isn't it, where you don't necessarily plan something out, but then reality gives you what's actually the proper 
the proper the the proper punchline to the sequence. Yeah. So they uh, leave through the the side exit, and Jim notices the the French teenagers again and starts staring and following them. And this has led me to the point where the park itself is a way of indulging in fantasy, of seeing all these these fun fantasy characters and enjoying this fantasy world. And as real life is starting to intrude on Jim with the knowledge that he's lost his job and that he has to break the news to his family and he's having to contain this within himself, he's escaping into his own fantasy of firstly masculine virility that he's chasing after these young French girls who are very much younger than he is yes to a to to an unnerving degree and then later in a series of increasingly weird adventures yeah i suppose i hadn't necessarily tied it together it, it kind of even at this point it kind of felt to me like that the the film was it felt a little bit more like a series of I'm not quite sure what the right phrase is. A, a series of almost sort of vignettes or something. And and in some ways I was prepared to accept he was following the two French girls just because, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure that... Almost because that there was something weirdly compelling about them. Almost like they had... Some, you know, again, I suppose you go back to this vague sort of magical kingdom thing that they had some kind of malign influence over him. But, uh, but yes, it could, it could it could again just be seedy middle-aged old man um and it it kind of works out for him you know they're able to go on various rides as they follow them around so um you know it's not like his son realizes there's anything too odd going on i don't think well elliot does eventually ask Mm. um jim why they why they're following the girls and i think jim says oh we're not we're not we just happen to be going to the same (laughs) places and he also (laughs) elliot also asks uh, his father is is mummy pretty, and he says, "Oh yes, yes, she's she's beautiful, not a, <laughs> not in the classic not in the classical sense, more in the kind of Emily Dickinson Tina Fey sort of sense." Which I thought that's a bit harsh on Tina Fey. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a bit harsh on Emily. Well, mind you, it's probably a bit harsh on Emily Dickinson as well. But uh... yeah, Emily Dickinson's been dead for quite a long time. She's unlikely to see this film. This is true. It's probably not going to upset her too much. No. But, uh... Can Sorry, all I was all I was going to say was it's one of these statements that will come back to haunt him later. Yeah. Um, Sarah and Emily go off to look for the others, and they go onto Space Mountain. Um, Elliot's afraid, and uh, Jim receives a call from Emily, which he then rejects. Mm. And in particular, there's a little detail that the profile picture on Jim's phone of Emily is a terrible picture of her. Yes, yeah. I think is it around the point where they go to Space Mountain that we get the kind of the first green screen shot? Because I think so. Yes. Yeah, there's definitely a point where I don't quite. Know, you kind of get used to the style, and and I suppose you accept that the style of the film is going to be lots of handheld camera because presumably they're just walking around the the park pretending to be tourists. Um, yeah. Is this actually? Is this filmed digitally, or is it uh, actually it was filmed? filmed? It was it was filmed digitally, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's noticeable that that you suddenly. 
and I, you suddenly make the transition from handheld shots to a very, very kind of stable. Um, These very lo- fixed, locked yeah. off shots, yeah. And unfortunately, Which... it, it makes the green screen shots stand out even more. I think. Yes, it's it's a pity that there's no obvious way around it. If you're working mm. on such a tight budget, then although you can do green screen handheld, it's very hard. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and the film was made on a, a very tight budget, um, about two-thirds of a million dollars. Mm. Um, so it really wouldn't have supported anything better. No, no, again, I suppose it's, it's, it's slightly frustrating that they don't necessarily talk about the production on the director's commentary. Is it just that that was a shot that they wanted and they couldn't get, or did they always intend to have occasional sort of long shots that, that were more sort of establishing? I think so, yes. I mean, there are... Yeah some parts where you need certain things in the foreground, certain things in the background and there are there are things that you wouldn't have been able to act out in yeah, the part without, without someone intervening um, I think one scene later where Jim meets the other woman and it's on a park bench and I think that was probably just filmed in a park yeah because there's yeah. nothing in the foreground or background that suggests it's actually on Disney property no, that's true and there's... Um... There's a few, that, that's it, and so long as you've got a generic lake in the background, yeah, people will just make the assumption. No, the, the shot of him holding up, um, the, the, the shot of Jim holding Elliot so that Elliot can be sick in the bin, you obviously kind of want Space Mountain in the background of that shot because it includes, all, as you say, it includes all the elements that you need to sort of tell the story visually. So it's just a shame. I, what I was, was really quite surprised at just how much it... it took me out of the story though I, I don't I, I'm struggling now to think of an occasion when I've had something similar where it's disrupted the, the kind of the visual atmosphere for want of a better phrase yeah the, the abrupt change in style mm. it sort yeah. of it discombobulates you and it pulls you out of the suspension yeah. of disbelief yeah um, at that point also he he watches the frolicking French teenagers again to the point where there is now accordion on the soundtrack Yes, yes, there which is, is isn't... which is charmingly allo allo, and they finally the family all meet up together again. It turns out that Emily and Sarah have been waiting for an hour. Yes, and uh, Emily is going to take Elliot back to the hotel for a rest, while Jim and Sarah stay in the park. Yeah, and this is the point where you start to vaguely see the fault lines in the family, isn't it? Because it's obvious that um, Emily has a better relationship with Elliot. And Jim has a better relationship with Sarah, the daughter. Um, and although they're all, you know, they're all, that, that's, that's kind of the thing that whenever the family is under stress, that's kind of the way it breaks down, isn't it? It's always father, daughter, mother, son. Um, and, you know, even to the point, I think, where much, much later, when he comes back to the hotel room with, when Jim comes back to the hotel room with, with the daughter, the mother and son are both asleep in bed together. And it's just that thing of, yeah, you, it's just interesting to sort of see the way that the film sets out the family relationships. Mm. And, of course, that, thinking about it, at the risk of getting far, far, far too ahead of myself, that then feeds into the kind of the, the payoff at the end of the film, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, so Jim and Sarah entertain themselves in the park. They go to a shooting gallery where Jim pretends to shoot himself. Oh, yeah. Which sort of points to his his inner landscape at the time 
And yeah. S- Sarah scowls at him and he says, yeah, that's not funny. So just with a look, she's telling him off yeah. for making such a crude joke. Um, they go up into the treehouse and he sees the teenagers and goes to follow them as light piano jazz plays on the soundtrack. Yeah. And they take the ferry over to Adventure Island um, where Jim and Sarah become separated as they run around this sort of paths around this sort of artificial mountain. And yeah. Sarah eventually runs out, falls and, and skins her knee um, having been apparently knocked down by the son of the man in the scooter. Yeah, I've got to be honest, I didn't pick up on that from the the storytelling, but whether that's just one of those occasions when they didn't quite have the footage that they needed. Um, but yes, you know, it's, it, it is that thing again, isn't it? It's, it's technically, I, I, you know, I assume if you're a parent, it's your, you know, you're, you're somewhere like that. Your kids disappeared. Yeah. What do you do? See, so you, you run around frantically and hope you find them again. <laughs> mm. So getting away from the, the creepy scooter man, they go to the, uh, infirmary where Jim is clearly bored but he's ogling the nurse yes um, and they talk about the cat flu and uh, she mentions that uh, you could be a host and not even realise it it's uh, a v- as, she, as she gives him a lollipop it's a very I'm trying, it's a very mannered performance from the nurse isn't it I think you know, in terms of everybody else, they're more or less playing it quite naturalistically. But then you sort of get the nurse comes in, and she feels a little bit more like um, a character from a John Waters film or something. It's just a slightly different tone of performance, or it might just be the way, as you say, that the camera isn't there a shot down her top at one point that's meant to be from Jim's point of view. I think so, yes. Yeah, so it might just be the way that the film treats her more than anything. But I, it's one of those. There's, there's obviously there's a few points where the film kind of raises flags and and um, and sort of wants to go. Oh, not not everything here is, is as you think it is. We've obviously had the whole sequence where they're going round on the ride and the the faces keep changing. And then yeah, her performance is just a little bit off in terms of the way it relates to everybody else's so far. Um, they browse in the shops for a little, and um, Jim buys a turkey leg to eat as they as they sit on a bench and a woman sitting next to him says you know that's not actually turkey it's emu and i think that's again pointing to how you don't know what's going on under the surface of this weird fantasy world you don't know if it's really emu how do you know that's not a human leg oh yeah that's true you know there has to be something to to counterbalance the the wholesomeness and the the very nice niceness mm. of everything. There must be some darkness under the surface to keep things in balance. Yeah. Uh, he ogles the other woman as well, and she notes that she has a very reflective necklace. Yeah. And after a moment, the, the film jump cuts to them suddenly in a hotel room having sex. Yes. And... And the implication is that he's just kind of blacked out or something, isn't there? That, that effectively, what, what it could almost be that what we're seeing are his memories. So he goes from remembering talking to this woman on the park bench to, yeah, suddenly being, uh, being caught in media res, as all the cool kids call it. 
Mm. Uh, he's he's tied to the bed, I think. Yes, he's tied to the bed. In fact, they've they've just had a very when they're sitting on the bench, they have a very odd conversation about Disney princesses, don't they? I think, where she's trying to she's she's telling him that the Disney princesses are high class courtesans for you know, and that 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 you know that they will sort of make themselves available to rich businessmen and things like that. I think that's which that's Asian, all part. Which Asian businessman? She does specifically specify Asian, doesn't she? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and as they're having sex, she also says to that he should find her hidden Mickey. <laughs> oh, is that um, what you? I, I I've got to admit, I rewound it a couple of times because I I, I couldn't quite make out what she was saying. And I think on the second attempt, I was just worried that somebody was going to come in and ask why I was rewinding a sex scene. So <laughs> that was the point when I just let the film play out. Um, but no, find out. Yeah, that makes sense because there is this whole thing, isn't there, with Disney, both of the Disney parks, that there's assorted Mickey figures built into the scenery and stuff like that and the real diehard fans know where they all are yes the the image of the three interlocking circles almost oh, like some kind of it's almost like some kind of occult symbol oh yeah um it turns out that the 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 other woman's child and sarah are in the room next door in the hotel suite watching a weird dance video mm. and um jim is able to make his escape and go back to their own hotel room uh, but it turns out that Emily and Elliot aren't there anymore and have gone down to the pool so Jim yeah. and Sarah join them yes and then the uh, and then again there's another bit where, where Jim sort of indicates that he's not exactly father of the year because the two French team, the, the two French girls turn up again and uh, he, he's, spending far, he's spending more time ogling them it, there's a whole sequence as well where I think much much earlier in the film um, Emily, uh, Jim's wife, has is it as they're they're walking somewhere, and she she says to Jim that he needs to sort of tell the son to stop doing something because she's fed up with always being the bad guy in the family. I'm struggling to remember yeah. now what I can't remember what the the son is doing, but he's just being a, he's being sort of low level obnoxious, and. Of course, then you get the scene in the pool where she again goes, have you put any sunscreen on? And she drags the daughter out of the pool because, no, of course, Jim hasn't put any sunscreen on. And there's a vague sense that he's almost like a passenger in the family. He's not really... He's not pulling his weight. No. And this, I think, is the point when I began to feel, you know, my, my sympathies for Jim started to shift from him being, you know, the the, the, the kind of the newly unemployed father to yeah as you say just somebody that's not really not not yeah not pulling his weight not doing his fair share of of parenting the kind of father who because he is the breadwinner in the family believes that that exempts him from having to do anything else yeah which i suppose in a way is a very 50s attitude which i suppose whether that's intent Probably not intentional, but but of course, given that that's when Disney, Walt, uh, Walt Disney started at least laying the groundwork for the parks and things. Disneyland itself, as I recall, opened in September 1955. Oh, is it? Oh, it was earlier. For some reason, I thought it was late 60s, but I might be getting it mixed up with the Florida one. Yeah, Disney World opened in, I think, 67. Right. 
But yeah, no, it's it's just a very fifties. It's a it's a very sort of madman attitude, isn't it? This idea that yeah, he earns the money, therefore he's done everything. And, you know, and in terms of actually making the family work, well, that's that's the wifely duties. Yes, and actually, it, it just occurred to me that in terms of the, the you know the perfect facade hiding something weird, um, hmm. Disney World is of course built on swamp. Yeah. But you could also argue that that it's kind of starting to sound like I'm, uh, you know, starting to sound a bit pseudo-intellectual about this. But that that's also the image of the fact you look at them and the image is that they're a perfectly respectable, nice family. Except you look a little bit closer and no, they're not. The dad's barely present. The mum's constantly stressed because she's the one that's dealing with the kids. The, you know, one of the kids is potentially a bit of a brat. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, I suppose there is, there's this idea that the characters are kind of mirroring the park image or something like that. Hmm. As Jim ogles the teenagers, the sound also falls away until Emily calls for him. Hmm. And there's also a bit where he plays dead in the pool. Um, yes. <laughs> until the lifeguard leaps in and grabs him and he says no I'm fine I'm fine <laughs> and I think that's it's like a turning point for the audience's perception in that there is no reason for him to have done that at all and and not realise that people would worry and panic yeah. that something was wrong so he's now just indulging himself he's indulging yes. his own behaviour yeah he's not even doing it to amuse the kids because the kids are both just the, 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 the kids are just both splashing around unconcerned and aren't paying any attention to him so yeah in a weird sort of way it almost seems like a, it's a very childish kind of attention getting gambit yeah and by now it's evening um, and the family's planning on going to uh, Epcot to see the firework display mm. so before they set out Jim has a beer on the balcony as um, is, Emily is struggling to uh, is, is doing the children. Yeah, is doing all the hard work again. She's trying to bathe the kids, isn't she? And the kids are just being little... Uh, the, the kids are... Well, they're not so much acting up, but they're, they're just being pain. So they're squirting shaving foam everywhere or something, aren't they? Yeah. And he... Um, something makes Jim drop his bottle of beer. I can't remember what it is now. Does he see the car pull up again? Yes, the van pulls up and the man gets out and looks up. And that makes him drop his beer. And he goes and gets another one and he stubs his toe. And, and oh, oh, it goes, it's one level beyond stubbing his toe, isn't it? Because this, instantly there's just kind of blood everywhere. Yeah. And I was, I was actually impressed by that bit of physical business because mm. as, as they ask in the commentary, did he do that for real? Because it's the, it is the most authentic looking fake toe stubbing. I have yeah, ever seen. Made me wince when he did it. Yeah, did they establish with? Yeah, that was it was scripted and acted. Wow. <laughs> but it's yeah, well done on Rory Abramson because that's yeah, yeah. A very a very authentic stubbing incident. Mm. Um, we also see Jim reading from a French phrase book. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, they're down in the. Sh- have we had the scene as well where once again Jim demonstrates that he's husband of the year by? Or the bell, he the gets little a... bell that he buys, yeah, which is um, a Dumbo 
themed bell when Emily specifically asked for a Minnie Mouse one. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and there's an interesting... Because, again, he's... Emily, I, I don't know, I, I, she, do, she doesn't quite come over as a shrew. She's a bit more... She, as a character, she's got a little bit more depth than that, but there are times when it just feels like the script has just given her the role of being the one that complains all the time. But maybe that, again, just plays into the the image of her as somebody that's fed up with being thoughtlessly treated as the one that does all the work. Yeah. She's she's continually grumpy, mm. but never without a good reason. Yeah. Yeah, and the, 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 the Dumbo Bell is as good an example as anywhere. It's It's kind of half right, but it's obvious that she's not been... And then she sees the French book, doesn't she? Which, uh, and, and again, she's, she's immediately well aware of what's going on there. Mm. I mean, with Dumbo particularly, the name, the fact that he's an elephant... It's not very funny. Yeah, it's... Re- I mean, Dumbo's a nice character, obviously. Yeah. But it's, it's not flattering. I mean, it would have been understandable if he'd, say, bought a Daisy Duck. Um, yeah. Well, well, yeah, well, Daisy Duck's... You know, she's a nice character, and but it's not perfect. It's not ideal, but she she could live with that. But no, yeah. no, here's one with Goofy on it. Yes, yeah. I'm trying now to think whether there's any French um, Disney characters in Disney cartoons. At least he didn't buy a one of um, the chef from Beauty and the Beast or something. <laughs> um, well, I know there's there's Jose Carioca, who's Brazilian, the Brazilian um, parrot. He's one of the very lesser known ones. Oh, right. Um, and of course, the version of the Three Musketeers with Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> they've they've done a, a whole string of various literary adaptations mm. with the main characters. Mickey's Christmas Carol being the classic, of course. Yes. Um, but um, they haven't gone to the um, extremes that the Muppets have. I remember some time ago it being speculated that they were going to do the Muppet Towering Inferno. <laughs> that would be yeah I would I would that, that might be the one film to drag me back to the cinema at the moment <laughs> yeah, you hear that Christopher Nolan <laughs> yeah, this is where his career is going wrong you see Christopher Nolan would be a perfect guest for the Muppet show oh yeah I mean, yeah, I... I mean you you want to see him send himself up you want to see him striding out mm. in a monocle and jodpers arguing with you know, Sweetums and Fozzy, and telling him to stop making jokes. This is serious. Yeah, yeah, and trying to make his uh, trying to make his epic film. Well, yeah, uh, while all around him, it's just the Muppets. Yeah, with the, special the, the usual chaos. Gonzo being everyone's stunt double. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know Miss, the, the, the <laughs> professor. Miss, the professor is it Professor something Honey. Bunsen Dunk, Bunsen Honeydew. Yeah, Bunsen Honeydew and Beak are doing the special effects, yeah. It has a certain... And um, Miss Piggy complaining about her lack of characterisation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yes, they go to Epcot, mm. and uh, Jim's first line upon seeing it is, it's a giant testicle. Yeah. Not that it's a giant golf ball, which is what everyone says about Epcot. Yeah. It's the wrong shape anyway. Everyone knows that uh, City Hall in London is called the Great Glass Testicle. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's Because it, it, is, it is actually shaped like one. Mm. Um, but while he's there, they also spot the man on the snooker 
man on the scooter. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. I, I, I knew what you meant, but yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a separate image, isn't it? It's because they've just been playing in the pool. Yes. And um, as they spend time at Epcot going through the various international sectors, Jim gets uh, gradually more and mm. more shit-faced. Well, from my memory of Epcot, that's... I didn't. I, I I didn't really get Epcot when I was there. Um, there's there's there, there are the, the rides aren't as immediately enjoyable as they are in the other theme parks. They're all a little bit more high concept, and because they are all corporate sponsorship, you basically spend forty minutes queuing up for something while an advert for Audi plays at you. It's very very odd. My notes here say Epcot's a theme park version of Earth. It looks awful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the only other bit of Epcot that they've got is a big lake, and you walk around it, and it's divided up into... So, yeah, here's the, here's the Japanese bit, here's the Polish bit. Here, and effectively, all there is to do, as far as I could see, is walk around this lake and have a drink in each bit, which... Fair play to Jim, that's what he did. Because that's the thing about Epcot. Isn't it the only one of the Disney parks where you can buy alcohol? I don't know, but I assume so, yes. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, I don't think they want people going on Space Mountain um, with a couple of pints of Carlsberg inside them. Or or going on Thunder Mountain in case they get decapitated. Yeah, in case you think it's a really good idea to stand up. Or like... Um, it's Lisa Simpson, isn't it, in uh, in the episode of Simpsons where they go to Duffland, where she drinks the water on the right and starts well, hallucinating. If you're, if you're going to a beer-themed amusement <laughs> yes, um, meet, meet the happiest fish in the world in the Duffby Aquarium. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, the seven stages of drunkenness who are all like, little oh, men yes, in beer yes. costumes. So you have to help him. Hey, I'm not helping anyone. I'm sur- <laughs> I'm surly, Bo- boozy, happy, surly, remorseful, and several yeah. others. Yeah, and a few others. Yeah. And um, Bart can't find a um, uh, a number plate with his name on, but they do find one for Bort. Bort. That's it. Yes, that's the other. That's Itchy and Scratchy Land because that's more of a Jurassic Park. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's yeah. more like Westworld, isn't it? Because the robots start trying to kill people. I suppose that's, yeah, Westworld, Jurassic Park. I suppose take take your pick, really, yeah. Well, Westworld's the prototype for Jurassic Park, because it's still Michael Crichton, isn't it? Yeah, of course, they're both... You know, I don't think I'd ever made that connection before. <laughs> but, but yes, they're, I, they're both... I think this is something that came up in conversation the other day when I was talking to someone about how the relationship between the film and the book of Jurassic Park is the same as between the film and the TV series of Westworld. That the long-form version is the complex, intricate, intelligent uh, dissection of the ideas within the context of a science fiction story, whereas the film is a science fiction story. Yeah. And it's full of, full of excitement and thrills, and it's very well made and very entertaining, but there's basically nothing else there. Yes. Because the film yeah. of Westworld is really good, but the TV series is much, much cleverer and more complex. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely um, there's definitely more going on there, which reminds me, I must go around get around to watching series two at some point. I must get around to watching series three at some point. Oh god! See, this is the problem. I I, I stopped paying attention for a couple of years, and they've released another one on me. <laughs> well, they seem to only do one series every other year because it's takes so much, takes so long to do, and it's so expensive. 
Mm. <laughs> um, at the very least, we shouldn't expect season four for a little while. No, that's true. Well, it gives me time to catch up. Mm. So while um, Jim is getting drunk around the world, yes. and at one point we see him in a beer hall, a German-style beer hall, wearing a fez, mm. um, he he empties his stein, and he's becoming more and more uh, belligerent. Yeah. So they go to a Mexican water ride and where he has a margarita. Oh, that's right, yes. Where he also starts hallucinating and, and vomits into the water. Yeah, that's it. Um, we've, they've done Small World already, haven't they? Because that's the bit right at the start of the film where there's yeah. certain little boats going around and everybody's faces start to change. Like I say, I went to Disney World um, at the height of the swine flu outbreak and I don't know if I had it or whether I just again had a low level cold it was really it was really funny because it turned out that the point when I was over in Florida was UK half term so the flight out was packed the flight pack the flight back was also packed with families that would were literally just out there for the course of a week and because we'd all come from the UK in October and it was cold and it was damp and then you got out to Florida where it was hot and humid. Um, and because you were constantly going into very, very dry air-conditioned places, everybody came down with really chesty coughs. And you would be standing somewhere in Disneyland and you would suddenly hear this... <laughs> ah, les anglais sont arrivés. You know, it was just... <laughs> you, you could just tell when the English delegation had turned up because everybody sounded like they'd been smoking 40 a day. But I... I'd had a really bad night's sleep before we went to Disney World. And I, as I say, I was running, I don't know if I was just running low-level swine flu or whether I, whether I just had the English cough or something like that. But I'd had a bad night's sleep and I, I, I drifted off in the middle of the Small World ride, um, which is obviously filled with all these terrifying, dead-eyed, tiny mannequins. And the, <laughs> I, the most unnerving place to work at. I woke up and I didn't know where I was. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I fully sympathise. The, the whole sequence where he's going around on the boat and everyone's uh, and everyone's faces start to look weird and creepy and then, as you say, he hallucinates on the Mexican ride and, and throws up. Without actually being sick, I've, I feel I've been in that situation. So I, I, have, I have plenty of sympathy for him on that one. He um, he, rewraps his uh, injured toe as well. Oh yeah, in the toilet. Yeah, which is, which is looking looking fairly awful. Mm. Whilst Emily sees the French teenagers who briefly seem to have demon faces. Yes. Yeah, it's almost the implication is that she's getting. I still I I still wasn't sure at this point, for want of a better phrase, what the plot of the film was. I I don't know. <sighs> You obviously you manage your expectations that they're in Disneyland for doing guerrilla filming. It's unlikely that they're going to be chased down Main Street by an army of zombies or anything like that. But there was, yeah, and I was starting to wonder: well, is is it just that this is a disease that's being passed from person to person or something like that? Um, 
and given the film's lack of answers subsequently, I'm still not entirely sure what I was supposed to think. But uh, but yeah, I'd forgot. Yes, yes, the the, the, the French girls are, are not. Again, it's it's almost like the film could be hinting that the French girls are not. I don't know. I, I don't want to say not real. I'm I'm struggling to think that quite how to describe them. What I thought was that the film is saying that that they are actually there, but yeah. they are sort of vessels onto which both Jim and Emily are projecting their own issues yeah, because they're bring, because they're bringing all their problems into this fantasy environment. They 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 they're projecting them onto the these other characters. Right at the end of the film, the very last shot of the film is a big the end caption, which is magicked into place by the two, by the two teenagers yes. who, are, who are portrayed as being fairies, like Tinkerbell. Yeah. So they're almost being embodiments of this place. They are fantasy beings yeah. in the same way as Mickey Mouse or... Um, nearly said Howard the Duck. <laughs> um, <laughs> Winnie, the, yeah. Winnie the Pooh. Um, yeah. But in a different sense, in the same way that the, the, the talk earlier of um, Disney princesses being... Um, prostitutes or or courtesans or what have yeah. you it's again it's it's a it's a fantasy world it's just fantasy on a different level mm. but jim and emily are bringing so much of their own strife of their own personal problems that it's like an antibody response yeah that that, that, that the park is sort of fighting back against them it's, yeah yeah so you can understand why the why Disney wouldn't want to be involved with a company that says come to our yes. parks and if and if you have any problems we'll kill you. And I suppose I, I suppose that's the one thing we haven't talked about is it's very very odd to see a film. I, uh, Disney have never done a film. Have Disney done a film recorded at either of their parks? Um, I don't think they have. Have they? I don't think so. Not a not a feature film. No. I mean I know they've obviously filmed yeah. documentary footage, but. I don't think so, no. It would have to... Oh, no, wait, they have. Um, some scenes in Saving Mr. Banks, the film about the making of Mary Poppins, are filmed at Disneyland okay. with Tom Hanks as Disney. Right. Cause I mean, I, they, I, could have, they could have been filmed elsewhere, but then why would they bother? Yeah, no, exactly. But I think that's the one thing that, that, that we haven't kind of talked about, is just how weird it is to see all this familiar Disney stuff as a backdrop. It's really, it's it's very, very, uh, it's really unusual. And I, 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 it doesn't sound much when you just sort of sit there and say it, but it's almost everybody, whether you're a fan of Disney films or not, everybody is steeped in this stuff. You just grow up with it and you just take it in by osmosis. And it's really weird to suddenly realise that you're just kind of seeing something that you haven't seen anywhere you know anywhere else it's 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 very very strange and it does give the film its own unique atmosphere it's the it's subverting the the wholesomeness mm. and the absolute um like climate controlled sense mm. of family friendliness of disney that you know, even my mother's generation grew up on yeah um and that's uh, but to, I, I, to see it, it subverted in this way is is pushing against it in as far and as opposite a direction as they can. Yeah, but I think the other thing as well is that you realise that it's not the guerrilla filming at Disney World is not just a gimmick. I don't. If they'd just gone to sort of Seven Flags over Georgia, 
and said, here's £25,000, can we have a licence to film? The film itself wouldn't have had the same impact because it would have been just another film set in a theme park. It specifically needs all that kind of Disney imagery, imagery I think, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it is that, that perfect fantasy escape. Yeah. Uh, it's specifically an escape from all the things that they have to face when they go back home and escape yeah. from tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, think, I, I think I I think I put enough gravitas into that. Do you think I think I got, do you think do you think I got the message across there? Listener, did I you understand was, what I was meaning with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you said it very well. You could you know, you, you could be uh, now say winds light to variable. Winds light to variable. That's lovely. It's like music. The Leith police dismisseth us. <laughs> um, Jim's drying his socks on a hand dryer. <laughs> mm. Which is, you know, after the shots of Madonna drying her armpits in whichever film that is, it's the, probably the second most disgusting thing I've seen in context with a, with a hot air dryer. Um, when the man on the scooter also comes in. And... Once they're outside, Emily confronts Jim about what's been going on. She knows about the French teenagers. She knows about the Emily Dickinson remark from earlier. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, she guesses that Jim's been following the, the girls, and he finally admits that he's actually lost his job. Oh, that's yes, yeah. Yeah, and she... Is that where they split up again? Yes. Yeah. So she once again she takes Elliot back to the hotel, and Jim stays with the daughter, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim tries to take her onto the spaceship Earth ride, where Jim sees the woman from the bench earlier on the who who he had sex with earlier on oh, the yes. big on the big screen of the ride, suddenly floating around topless. Yes. Outside. Um, Jim not only spots the uh, French teenagers, but one of them actually approaches him. Hmm, that's right. Yes, she. This this is where she. She asks him to go with her. Is that yes? Is that this secret? Yes, yeah, yeah. And he kind of refuses, or, or relu- I think, I suppose, reluctantly refuses. Is and she seems very surprised by this. Not quite yet, but um, oh. they, he takes. Um, he takes her hand, and suddenly, um, <laughs> the Epcot Center explodes. Oh, is that the yes? <laughs> and, yeah. And in the distance, we see a huge mushroom cloud. Yeah. The mushroom cloud is not a visual effect. <laughs> that is part of the uh, fireworks display of having this explosion at the end. Apparently. Really. Yeah. Why that's not. They? That's not a trick effect. Wow, I, I, I just just assumed it was a was a composite. Wow, <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's it's, it's, and somebody. Uh, I, I think that was it. That my kind of response to seeing that was bloody hell. Okay, this film has just gone in an unexpected, um, unexpected direction. Because by this point, I'm literally just. And I'm still, as I say, I'm still, I'm still not entirely sure that we're not just Jacob's laddering all over the place. But uh, the, I just kind of accepted that whatever the film was showing me was 
was happening to the cameras, it was sorry, was happening for the characters, even if it wasn't literally happening within the reality of the film. So to discover that not only is that happening in the reality of the film, but it's happening in the reality of reality is, yeah, uh, yeah wow. But the, the image snaps back and mm. it turns out that was a fantasy moment. Um, yeah. the, French, the French girl approaches Jim again and she asks him to come with them. Mm. But oh, you're that's... right, he does, he, he does say no because he says that he's worried that something bad would happen. Mm. And she replies that if he doesn't go with them, then something will. At which point she spits in his face. Yeah, and it is a deliberate... Because I, I was left a little bit unsure. Well, I couldn't quite work out whether she'd... Going back to the sort of the flu motive and stuff, whether she'd coughed. But no, it's a deliberate... It's a deliberate spit, isn't it? Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Um, where it turns out that um, Sarah has gone... Uh, Jim searches for her frantically and is eventually tased <laughs> by the uh, security staff. Yes, yeah, but it's weird. It, it, and this is not—we're not quite against the backdrop of the fireworks yet, are we? That comes later in the. That, yeah. And then he goes into mission, doesn't it? That's it. Sorry, I've just had to re-establish. And this was the point where, of course, the, the caption card intermission comes up, and. That's as much, That's more for the character than the audience, isn't it? It's you know, it's 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 again, it's 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 literally referring to what's happening to Jim. He's basically just blacked out again. Um, when he wakes up, he is tied to a chair in a Siemens branded lab. Mm. Who are not associated with the film. I feel we should probably yeah. stress at this yes. one. But they are one of the sponsors of Epcot. Yeah. And the oddly accented German scientist there notes that he visited the park when he was a child mm. um, and activates a, uh, a weird helmet that causes bits of the Epcot Center uh, dome to form yeah. over his head. Yes, and to kind of form a little mini Epcot dome. I, I don't know if this is... I'm all, I, I think all the way through this film I was waiting for the point where somebody would turn to the camera and kind of go, and oh, this is what's really happening. And that's kind of initially what I, th- initially what I thought this, this scene might be, but obviously, no, it just goes off on its own... Uh, uh, it goes off in its own direction again. There are video screens that show images of the, uh, the woman from earlier and yeah. events from earlier in the day. And also uh, some of what the scientist refers to as the real Jim. Yeah. Uh, who is dressed differently and is with a different family. Mm. Um, the scientist reveals that everything that has been happening has actually been part of an experiment um, ever since he's been at the child, had been at the park when he was a child. Um, his boss is part of the conspiracy and his firing and the closure of the Buzz Lightyear ride are also parts of the uh scheme. Yeah. Um it's it's getting it's getting pretty uh far off into the realms of fantasy now, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much it's there's a kind of, I think this was the point when I kind of decided that the film wasn't actually going to ever 
it's weird. Sorry, I'm leaping around a little bit. Obviously, when we did the review of the year a while ago, we talked about us, and we talked about the disappointing moment in us where they learn what's going on. And the more the film explains what's going on, there's kind of the drabber and harder to... Um, take the film sort of seriously that the, the it, it, yeah the, the the film's weakened every time it tells you what's going on, and you realise that that films like Escape from Tomorrow walk a very very difficult line between telling you what's going on and letting you draw your own conclusions. But I could have done with a couple more hints, to be honest. I thought it was reasonably clear that. Enough of what's happening is happening only inside Jim's mind. I think that was or, it, or his, or his imag- that there, are, you know, there are, you know, there are weird people in the park. Yeah, there, you know, there, there is some weird guy on a scooter who yeah. is just odd and creepy at people because that's that, you know, things like that happen. Yeah, but um, the, the the cat flu, maybe that's something. Yeah. The really crazy stuff, like the secret experiments and mm. the Epcot helmet, and um, the whole place exploding, and the fairies. Yes, um, those things are probably not real. Yeah, I suppose it's. For, I don't want to sound. I don't want to start sounding like I'm, I'm being too grumpy or anything. It's quite a. You know, father goes to Disneyland. And walks around hallucinating. It's quite a slender plot to hang a sort of a ninety-minute film on. Is I suppose the only. Well, the if only... you're able to, if you're able to come up with a, an interesting rationale for why he's hallucinating and how yeah. his own uh, paranoias and anxieties and neuroses are feeding into this, and how the environment of Disney World is yeah. um, causing his psyche to become yeah. increasingly unhinged, then I think True. there is a story in that. I suppose it's more. I, I have a I have a limited amount of patience at times with films. I, I I suppose sometimes I just want a little bit more, a little bit more to grab onto. And and I think this was the point when I just I certainly I was willing to go along with the fine. This is this is all happening in the dad's head. Um, but of course the trouble is once you get to that, I, I was lucky in a way that I got to the this is all happening in the dad's head point after the Epcot Dome had exploded. Because that moment wouldn't have been anywhere near as um, kind of shocking if I was just sitting there going, "Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all just a, it's a rich tapestry. It's all just a hallucination." That's that's the thing, though. That enough of it is enough of it is real to be mm. disconcerting, because yeah. as they say, bad bad things happen everywhere. Yeah, yeah. The, fil- the film starts with uh, with a decapitation on a ride, and that's only a slight exaggeration from what is mm. actual documented fact. Yeah, that and even Disney World is is not impervious to mm. the violence of reality. And I don't want to sound like I did because I don't want to sound like I didn't enjoy the film because I, I did, uh, and it's got its own. It's got a very very unique atmosphere. Uh, I think it's it's perhaps one of those situations where I kind of went in with my own expectations and my own expectations of of, of what I kind of think of you know what I what I arrogantly think a film should do, um, and it didn't quite. I'm trying. Do you remember we we talked about Jerry ages ago? 
Oh, yes. And that's almost a deliberate attempt, isn't it, to to tell us tell a film with as little incident as possible, because it's basically isn't it basically just two characters walk into the desert, and one of them dies. And I think I've just pretty much summarised the plot. Yeah, that's that's um, that's almost it. Yeah. And I suppose maybe I should be looking at this as more like more like Jerry rather than. I think the problem was that that at some point I must have I, I, at some point I glanced very very quickly at the Wikipedia page, um, and obviously you know as is typical with Wikipedia it sort of goes you know Escape from Tomorrow is above something about a horror film and I think perhaps because I just it was enough for me to see the words horror film that it left me it perhaps set my expectations wrong. Yes, I mean it's yeah. it's it's not in any way a um a uh, a traditional horror story because no. of because of the circumstances of its its creation and the the context it's looking at. Mm. It's something very distinctive and it uh, mm. I I feel it needs to be looked at at its own merits really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I don't know quite what I was expecting. What, what I, I suppose I said he obviously wasn't expecting anything as crass as you know somebody chasing around Disneyland with an axe or something. Because I'm pretty sure that's the kind of thing that Disney security would be all over. Um, but yeah, I think I wonder if it was that. I wonder if it was just that ill-advised glance at Wikipedia. It just kind of left me with the wrong expectation of what what I was about to watch. Um, so. Jim is able to get a small packet of suntan lotion out of his pocket and squirt it onto the controls. It is suntan. Um, I couldn't work out what because he'd been in the toilet cubicle rubbing it on his big tongue. I assumed it was like germaline or some kind of anti. Oh. Yes, you're right. It might well be. Yeah, but then the film goes all Ken Russell for a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Suddenly, the squirting suntan cream is a me- is a fairly obvious visual metaphor. Well, that didn't occur to me. Oh, really? It goes no. all over the picture of the naked lady's bottom. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't remember a naked lady's bottom. I'm sure that. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, but, but it's just. It, no, yeah, I'm sitting there going, oh yeah, yeah, I, I've I've seen the lair of the white worm. Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just thought there was something very, very the the, 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 the fairly, there was something fairly obviously metaphorical about the uh, the suntan cream spray. Let's just leave it at that. Oh. Uh, so he's able to get free and uh, escapes, but not before it's revealed the scientist is actually an android. Oh yes, yeah. And he gets back out into the park and comes across the scooter man again. Uh, whom he thinks is involved in attacks, mm. and finally goes goes back to the uh, room of the woman he slept with, where he finds Sarah, who is now dressed as Snow White. There's a whole really nicely shot sequence where he's running around the park against the backdrop of crowds looking at the fireworks, isn't it? And that's yes. that's that's very very well done that sequence. Um, and there's again, there's a few shots of the, the. At this point, the two French teen girls have um, teamed up with a couple of teenagers, haven't they? 
Yeah, a couple and, of boys. Yeah, and there's some very very nicely framed shots of the of the four of them kind of standing completely motionless with the fireworks in the background. And again, it's it's a it's a lovely image. It's actually as as you mentioned, it's very reminiscent of us. This image oh, image yes. of pe- people people standing in a row holding hands. Yeah. Just silently. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, and then what is it that makes him... Oh, he bumps into the guy, and the guy goes, I've dropped my... Tur- you made me drop my turkey leg. That was it. Was I was trying to remember what made Jim do, draw the connection back to the the strange woman from earlier, but it's that the guy says, oh, you made me drop my turkey leg, and he goes, it's not turkey leg, it's emu, and that's enough for him to kind of connect the dots with where his daughter has possibly gone. And yes, there's a whole... She's taking kids back to her room and playing Snow White with them, is that? Yes, yeah, she's dressed yeah. as the, the Wicked Queen and Sarah's dressed as Snow White. And she says that she used to work in the park as, as a Disney princess herself. Mm. Um, but um, lost her job after she got carried away and hugged a girl too tightly for too long. Yes. And using the the reflective necklace she's been wearing, she hypnotises Jim, but Sarah mm. pulls it off and smashes it so that he's freed from her evil spell. Yeah. And before she says, uh, you can't be happy all the time. Yeah. So so by that rationale, this is this film is a plea for tolerance for those with mental health issues. Poss- yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, or, or, or the, 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 the kind of the argument against the Prozac the, the Prozac uh, prescriptions, isn't it? Where 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 you're just medicating against people not feeling unhappy. Yeah, but p- yeah. medicating against people feeling unhappy. Just just you know, not not so much for just for people with depression, but people that just don't feel particularly happy. Yeah, yeah. You ta- you need to tackle the root of the problem. Hmm. Medication medication is yeah, the the backup for the real issue. Which again, weirdly, is yet another very kind of fifties attitude, isn't it? With the thing about mother's little helper and all that sort of thing, and the idea. That, oh, you mean, you mean gin? Uh, no, sorry, I, I'm just thinking that, that <laughs> where, where, where I'd said where I'd said earlier that um, you could argue that Jim's got a very sort of madman, sort of late fifties, early sixties attitude to family. The idea that yes, you know, it's there's medication stuff in there as well. Is is it's kind of feeds back to the idea that in the fifties and sixties you had all these bored housewives that could only cope by being bored housewives by uh, by taking loads and loads of Valium. Oh, I I know I said I said gin as in oh gin and to- sorry and, I thought... and tonic. Yes, sorry I misheard. I thought you meant I thought you said Jim. <laughs> no, but uh, but Jim's yeah he's clearly struggling as well. The right, idea yes. of having to provide for his family, the, mm. the fact that he's supposed to be the breadwinner of the family. Mm. And that's the only thing that he contributes, and now can't even do that. And it's no yeah. wonder that his brain his brain is going wrong. It's just falling apart. Yeah. He he also was able to get Sarah the balloon that she wanted, um, that she yeah. asked for earlier in the film. Yes, that's um, right. That's that's when they were at Epcot, isn't it? And it's when um, when Emily has has a bit of a meltdown over everything that's being done over the course of the day, and yeah. she won't she won't let. She won't let Sarah have the balloon, and I can't remember what the the son wants. He wants something as well, doesn't he? And yeah, you know, because again, presumably she's now at that point of thinking, "Oh, 
great, now my, you know, now the breadwinner's lost his job, so now we can't afford to spend money on anything. So again, it, it kind of feeds back into that thing of her having to be the boring, responsible breadwinner, while uh, while everybody else is, uh, well, while the kids are being kids. So you can't, can't yeah. really blame them. <laughs> but Jim takes her back to the hotel room, puts the whole family to bed. Uh, Emily yeah. and Elliot are already asleep. And there's a montage of the park in mm. closed down at night where it's shutting down. Yeah. As Jim goes as Jim goes to the bathroom and is violently ill from all ends. Yes. Uh, clearly a lot of uh something going on. And that that gets worse when uh he starts coughing up furballs. Yes. And then it makes the link back to cat uh, to cat flu, doesn't it? Yeah. And then his son is this when his son comes into the bathroom again? Yeah. And, and Jim asks him for help, but Elliot just closes the door. Yeah, which is, a, in a way, is a kind of a mirror of the scene that, that opens the start of the film and just, again, just suggests that the father-son relationship, not a good one. So we cut to the following morning. The park is empty. It's all clean and pristine and perfect. As Emily goes in, wakes up, goes into the bathroom and sees Jim laying on the floor of the bathroom, dead, mm. with slitted cat eyes and a great big grin on his face. And it is the most disturbing image in the entire film. It's very, very... <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Oh, of course, I've just realised. A Cheshire cat. I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, right. I think that, yeah. Because he's definitely fallen down the rabbit hole, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, but yes, by that point, certainly. Into his own grave. And then, um, and then the Disney medical employees arrive. Oh yes, the Disney mortuary service arrive. <laughs> Finally, having arrived in their van, they look up. They realise that he's not there on the balcony, so he's dead. And they Is arrive that... to. Is that what's been going on with those repeated shots? Mind you, of course, this time it's a van rather than a... No, it's a van. As you say, it's a van each time, isn't it? Yeah. So there's almost this sense... I, I don't think I've joined those particular dots before. There's a sense that they've just been turning up constantly throughout the film because they know he's that... going to die at some point. Yeah, which suggests that even before things were going wrong, there was some indication that something was going to happen. Yeah. Because now that Jim is dead and his corpse has gone weird, um, <laughs> if if this is a dream, who's dreaming it? Well, yes, this is true. So the clean-up crew arrive to, to tidy everything up and to take uh, Jim's remains away. Uh, they also psychically implant memories into Elliot of going on the Buzz Lightyear ride. I was going to ask, because that was the impression I got from that, was that, no, they definitely do, don't they? That's that's their... Uh, they, they give him the memories of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And they carefully clean the bathroom, and <laughs> then when they finish, they go outside and they all have a smoke. Yes, well, yeah, working Joes and all that, yeah. Hmm. Just as the New Day's intake of guests arrive, they take the body out and put it in the white van, drive away, just as another um, minibus draws up 
And who gets out but Jim, accompanied by the other family from the uh, footage inside mm. Epcot, going inside the hotel, ready to enjoy their new holiday. Yeah, and it's, so, it's he's with Sarah, the daughter, isn't he? I, I don't think so. I can't ah. remember. I kind of, and it's, you know, it's entirely possible that I, I misinterpreted this. I was under the impression that he turned up and the the new family group was, was Jim, Fantasy Woman and Sarah, and that the son had been kind of written out of the, uh, written out of the family equation. But I could be, could be wrong about I, that. I think, I think, I think you might be right. And then as the, the camera pulls back to, we see the hotel and the old fashioned, the end caption appears. Hmm. Magic into position by the French girls. Yes, and um, we cut to the end credits. Um, I think I think it's a really great film. Hmm. I I think it's so brimming over with weirdness and creepiness. It it takes the central idea hmm. of a psychological horror story set and filmed in Disney World, and I think it milks it for every permutation you, you can get. Mm. Of the the weirdness of the Disney princesses of of acting these characters all day in this yeah. real world environment of this corporate sponsorship all over the place of the the artificiality of it of this theme park version of the Earth so mm. that it's like an entire enclosed world and the idea of ev- everyday problems from outside being a kind of malign infection. Um. As well as the sheer ambition yeah. of trying to tell a story like this and trying to produce it, um, I think it's a, a really impressive achievement. Um, even though the the limitations placed on the production have forced them to come up with um, different tricks mm. on the story, like like the whole idea of them not being able to go on the the Buzz Lightyear ride was pure yeah. chance. But then it neatly is folded in at the end. Yeah. I, yeah, I think uh, it's a, I think it's a really terrific film. I yeah, I think I think having now had a chance to to sort of step back and think about it a bit, I, I think providing you go into it with the expectation, you don't expect it to tell us. It's it's not necessarily telling a story as such. It is much more of a film like Joey, where it's almost an experiment in getting a film out of an environment rather than. Going somewhere and making a script, if that you know, visualizing a script, if that if that makes any sense. Yeah, I it's got it's got a un it's got a unique atmosphere. There is there is no other film that kind of looks like this, or unless Disney radically revises its policy. Yeah, you know, there's there's never going to be another film that that can even come close to looking like this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I liked it a lot. Looking at the. Um... The Wikipedia page for research is quite interesting because very few people involved mm. in the production seem to have been uh, working on any other major productions. Um, as I say, the composer has worked on a few other major issues, major um, films, I should say. Mm. Uh, but it's to date Randy Moore's only directing credit, and oh, only really? one member, only one member of the cast has their own Wikipedia page, uh, Annette Mahendru. Oh, yes, who, one plays, of the... who, who plays one of the French teenagers. On the back of this film, or rather just after this film, she was cast in The Americans, mm. the uh, period espionage drama, for which she landed a Critics' Choice Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> so 
she had maybe the least input into the production of any of the main cast, but she's also had the most successful career. Hmm. Um, so it uh, strikes me as maybe it's the one who was the least involved in this, whom Disney has in its malign control over all media. <laughs> yes, well, al- these al- days, allow- yeah. allowed allowed to flourish <laughs> as a warning to the others. Yeah, well, that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, as as the Disney conglomerate grows larger, you don't you really don't want to upset them these days. Um, no, I mean, um, woe betide whoever it is who decides to upload this film to Disney Plus, <laughs> because um, oh, they might find themselves disappearing down the memory hole. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, with over 80 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at Cinema Limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, smile. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.